Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are all wise, all good, all perfect. And we come before you today asking you that you would teach us what it means to pray. And that we would, like never before, become devoted to prayer. God, we know that that kind of discipline is a work of your spirit that we're not able to do that on our own. And so I pray that his presence be made known in our lives and that he would aid us to be devoted to prayer. God, be with us now as we open your word. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When using the word prayer, I'm confident there are many of you that have a lot of ideas about what prayer is and what it looks like. And no wonder, prayer is a cornerstone and a pillar of almost every religion out there. And I don't know about you, but when it comes time for me to pray, I get overwhelmed with the practice because I wonder how long should I pray? What kind of pattern should I follow? Is there a certain posture that I'm supposed to have? Certain words that I'm supposed to say? And so I feel a lot like the disciples did in Luke in chapter 11. Uh, Jesus was, um, had gone off to pray and he comes back and his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, the disciples had seen this regular habit of Jesus to go off to withdraw by himself and to spend long periods of time in prayer. And because they were his disciples, they wanted to follow his example. They they wanted help in this. And so they said, Lord, teach us to pray. How do you pray? And that question has been ringing in my mind and my heart in developing this message this morning. And that's a question that I've been asking for a couple of months. God, teach me to pray. Teach me what it means to seek your face, to to have a conversation with you, um, to communicate with you. Teach me your ways. And so it's with that humble beginning that we ask God this morning through the scriptures to teach us to pray. And this morning, we're going to be asking three questions. What is prayer? Why should we pray? And how do we pray? What is prayer? Why pray? And how do we pray? In the Bible, we get a lot of examples of prayer. You can look at Abraham. He prayed for a son. Jacob, he prayed for a blessing. Moses prayed for God's presence not to leave the Israelites as they entered the promised land. All of Israel prayed for deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. Hannah, she prayed for a son. David prayed for guidance and revelation and forgiveness. Solomon prayed for wisdom. Elijah prayed for miracles to happen Both Ezra and Nehemiah, as they were building the walls in Jerusalem, asked that God would help them in that. Job prayed for relief in his suffering. Jeremiah prayed for judgment. Ezekiel prayed for a remnant of people to rise up out of Israel. Daniel prayed for forgiveness for Israel. Amos for help. Jonah for death. Habakkuk for revival. And then we get to the New Testament. We see Jesus. He prays for healings. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the church. He even prays while on the cross. And then his disciples pick up that pattern and they pray in the early church. In the book of Acts, you can see they're praying for boldness and for power. And then Paul, even as he's writing his letters to the New Testament churches, writes prayers that the churches might be sanctified. So even within scripture, we get all kinds of different prayers and So I'm still asking that question, what is the essence of prayer? 
And it's only when you begin to look at all of these prayers together do you begin to realize that they do have kind of this underlying essence to them. And they are very simply put, and this is not a big revelation, prayer is simply put, words spoken to God. Whether it be for deliverance, whether it be for a son, a miracle, help, forgiveness, boldness, sanctification, every prayer of Scripture is someone's words spoken to God. But I think prayer is a little deeper than that. I like the way Timothy Keller in his book on prayer writes it. He puts it like this. Prayer is a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And that is true of every prayer that we see in Scripture. First, it's personal. Each prayer is unique in what it asks for. It's personal in this regard and unique in even how it's delivered. But the second thing is they speak words. It's communications. It's an actual language. It's more than just babbling or nonsense parts of words. It's speaking to God. It's a conversation with a personal God. But it is also a response to what one knows to be true about God. And every single person has some sense of the knowledge of God, but every person's knowledge may vary. Let's look at Abraham, for example. Abraham, when he prays to God, he asks God for a son. Now, when Abraham prays, the Ten Commandments haven't been given yet. God hasn't given the prophets, and and David, the great king, hasn't come. Jesus, nope, not yet. The, The church and the spirit, none of those things. Simply, when Abraham prays, All he knows to be true of God is that God wants to bless all nations on earth through him, that he's going to make his name great, that he's going to give him many descendants. And so Abraham, in his old age, says, God, well, if you're going to give me many descendants, could we just start out with one? He prays, asking what he knows to be true of God. When David, King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, and he prays for forgiveness, he's praying before the cross. He's not asking to forgive me because of of the cross and and what Jesus has done there. That hasn't happened yet. He's asking God because he's merciful and thinking about the sacrificial system. And so when it comes to you and I, since God has revealed himself to us through his word and through his son Jesus, which we can read about in his word, prayer then for us is a personal conversation that God has started in his word, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. Now think of this just in terms of any conversation that you would have with someone. There's a listening aspect and a speaking aspect. You talk, the other person listens. Then you listen and they speak. So when it comes to conversing with God, the listening aspect, as we saw last week, is done through a study and reading of his word. And the speaking on our behalf is done through prayer. But it's first initiated by God. We respond to what we know to be true of God based on his revealed word that we approach him. We, we bring what we know to be true about him in bringing our request, right? We wouldn't approach God asking for help if we didn't know that he could help us. And how do we know that he can help us? His word tells us. And so the more conversation we have with God, the deeper our relationship with him is going to be. And it's also true that if your, conver- if your relationship with him is always one-sided, your relationship's going to be kind of shallow. If all you ever do is listen, 
could never speak. You're in danger of your theology not becoming practical, being able to live out what the Word says. And if all you ever do is speak and and never listen, you're in danger of your prayer life being shallow and superficial and, and even selfish. And if all we ever do is approach God when we need Him, we're in danger of having a weak and stale relationship with Him. But when we encounter God through the Scriptures, through listening, and through prayer, through speaking, our relationship with him becomes rich and deep, lively, and there's power to it. It becomes strong and life-changing. And that's the purpose of this whole series that we're doing, looking at these disciplines that we see practice in Scripture, that when practice on a regular, habitual basis will lead to real life-changing, a real encounter with God, something that will ignite your life. And that's actually one of the reasons why we pray. We pray because God acts when we pray. God responds to prayer. Perhaps you've seen this to be true in your own life, but the scriptures definitely testify to this fact. In the book of Exodus, as Moses is talking to God at the burning bush, God says this, the Lord in Exodus 3, 7 through 8, the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out their prayers because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So, and this is how God's going to act, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he tells them exactly where that land's going to be. There are prayers all throughout the scriptures for healing, for deliverance, prayers for a child, prayers for wisdom, and God answers these prayers. Prayers make a difference because God acts when we pray. Matter of fact, that's one of our values here at Plum Creek. Our value says we pray because we trust in God and depend on Him and because prayer makes a difference. Prayer does make a difference because God acts when we pray. Related to that, another reason why we pray is because the needs around us are great. The needs of our own life, the needs of our church, and the needs of the world They're more than we're capable of accomplishing or handling on our own or even together. And it is true, God can do more in five seconds than all of us combined could do in five years. In the book of James, in chapter 5 and verse 16, it says this, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And why is that? Because the man's righteous? Mm, I don't think so. Prayer is not powerful and effective because of our words or because of who we are. Rather, prayer is powerful and effective because of who we pray to. See, our needs are great, but we pray to the God who's greater. And with that truth and that realization that the needs in and around us are many, we pray to a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. We pray to the creator and the ruler of the universe I love what Psalm 147 in verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in His power. His understanding has no limit. That is who we pray to. And because He has that kind of power and that kind of wisdom, that there's truly no limit or ability to it, limit to it, that He's holy, meaning that He's above and beyond us in every way, we pray to Him. Because the needs around us are great, but He's greater still greater than our own personal needs, than our church's needs, and our world's needs. We pray to the God who by his very words created the heavens and by his breath placed the stars in their place. 
The last reason why I can see why we should pray is because God clearly commands prayer in his word. And as a people who are committed to the Bible as for our source of life and practice, we submit to the authority of the scriptures. And we see prayer commanded all throughout. Paul says when exhorting the church in Rome, be constant in prayer. Or in the book of 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. We're told to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who lead us, pray for the mission field, pray for our governing officials. Prayer is clearly a command we see all throughout the scriptures. And so because of that, we pray. But we still need to get down to the mechanics. Because in asking that question, how to pray, that's really what we're wanting to know. So this morning, I want to offer you five helpful tips, and I know there's six points in your bulletin, but we'll get to the last one. But five things to keep in mind as you begin to develop this discipline of prayer. These are actually, these five are adopted from the well-known preacher and author, John Piper. Number one, prayer should be both free and formed. Our, Our habit of prayer sometimes should be free prayer meaning that we pray whatever words might come to our mind, similar to the prayer that I prayed at the beginning of this message. We pray not having a set pattern or rhythm, not following a certain example. Our prayers are just simply at their raw state before God. However, I think it's good sometimes that our prayers should follow a form that should have a pattern to it. Perhaps it's that you follow the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you simply just recite the prayer, or like in the video we see at the beginning of the service, that you read each line and and meditate and work through each line, praying each line. Or I like this pattern that Timothy Keller offers in his book on prayer, that you pray upward, inward, outward. First, you start out your prayers praising God upward, and then you start looking in and examining self and needing to confess. You pray inward. And then finally, you're asking God to intervene and work in situations. We call this prayers of supplication. You pray outward. Another kind of form prayer is praying through the Psalms. Many people who write on prayer, they actually say it wasn't until a serious study of the book of Psalms and praying the Psalms that they really begin to understand prayer. And I'm finding that to be true in my own life. See, there's a psalm for almost any situation in life. And when you're facing a situation and you can find a psalm for that, maybe for that season of your life, you simply pray that psalm, pray each line. Now, just because a prayer is recited or just because it follows a certain pattern doesn't mean that it's shallow or insincere. Matter of fact, I think there can be a lot of power and spiritual pungency to praying God's word back to him if and when it's done with a humble and insincere heart. And I encourage you, if you're just now or wanting to get started in this daily daily rhythm of prayer, that you actually start out with a formed prayer. That you follow something like the ACTS acronym, which stands for prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You start out adoring God, confessing your sin, thanking him for what he's done, and asking him to intervene. Prayers to be both free and formed. But prayers also to happen whether we are alone or assembled alone. That is, we pray in secret. We go in, close the door, and pray to the God who's unseen. Praying when no one else is around or knowing that we're praying. Matter of fact, Jesus commanded this kind of prayer because he wanted to warn us against the example of the Pharisees who only prayed because they wanted the appearance of righteous or holy, but there was no real life change. So sometimes 
we should pray alone, just us and God. But the early church also prayed corporately and together. We see this in the book of Acts where the disciples in Acts 2 and 42, the church just started. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's important that we pray for one another and that we pray with one another. That's why we incorporate prayer into our worship services. And God promises us that when we are coming together in his name, he'll be there. Furthermore, when we pray together as a group assembled and God responds to that prayer, more people are able to testify to God acting and moving. Free and formed, alone and assembled. But next, we're to pray whether we are desperate or delighted. Sometimes we'll come to God and we pray prayers of desperation. We're asking him to intervene and to work. Perhaps you're in a financial crisis. You've just been diagnosed with cancer or someone you love is suffering from a terminal disease. You just got news that your child's school's on lockdown. We pray in desperate times. When there is nowhere else to turn, we cry out to God and we pray. And for some, this may be the only time they pray. But I want you to know that although God responds to desperate prayers, if all we ever do is pray in times of desperation, we're going to miss out on our full encounter with God. Yes, our prayers should be in times of need, but they also should be in times of plenty. Because the God we pray to, he's the God of the valley. Yes, he is. But he's also the God of the mountaintop. He's the God of the storm. He is also the God of the calm. I like the way the Westminster Catechism puts it. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our ultimate goal, the, the end of us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so sometimes our prayer should be of just simple delight and joy, of adoration and thanksgiving, of simple praise where we glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our prayer should also be, number four, explosive and extended. By this, I'm referring to the time or the length of our prayers. Explosive in the sense of quick and fast. An example of this is when you're put into a situation you didn't expect and you need God to intervene. A few weeks ago, I was calling someone and uh, had to kind of address an issue, and about that time, as the phone was ringing, I thought to myself, man, it'd probably be good if I asked God for some help here. Ask God for some words of wisdom and also that they would, he would soften that person's heart. So as the phone is ringing, I'm praying. It's explosive. It's quick. But there's also times where our prayer should be extended, long periods of time. Now, I'm not trying to put a certain time frame around this. I just recognize that real relationships take real conversations, and real conversations take time. Martin Luther, he was the great Protestant reformer who stood up against the Roman Catholic Church, and he said this about his prayer life. I have so much to do today, I'll spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, I'm not saying we need to spend three hours in prayer every day or you're in danger of losing your eternal reward. That, that's not what I'm saying. I bring up this example because Luther knew something about the power of prayer, that it doesn't work against you. It actually works for you. God moves and interacts and intervenes, but it means that our prayer sometimes got to take time. 
And if you're married, you know this to be true in your marriage relationship. You may be able to go a couple days with your spouse, only having small talk where you're talking about just daily things, but there's sometimes where it gets to a point where you're saying, we, we need to talk. Maybe nothing's wrong. You just recognize, well, we, we need to have a conversation. We need to spend some time together. And it's true of our relationship with God as well. The last practice for our habit of prayer is that it should be, number five, spontaneous and scheduled. Prayer sometimes needs to be spontaneous, where it happens in the car ride, in the middle of a conversation, or when you've been convicted of a wrong that you've done and you need to confess it to God. Even just last week, I was headed home, getting packing up all my stuff, and about that time, someone walks in, and they're asking for some help and talking about their life story for the last couple of years, and I just realized right there, we needed to pray. It was spontaneous, wasn't planning for it, wasn't scheduled, and there's some times where that's what we need to do, just pray right there. But if, all we, if we never schedule our prayers before you know it, there goes the morning, there goes the day, there goes the week, the month, the year, and a life. So we also need to set up scheduled prayer time where we have a routine to it. And you need to set up a time in your own life where you're going to routinely and habitually and regularly and consistently live out your relationship with God in prayer. During this series, we have actually are setting up a time for you to do that. It's our Facebook Live that happens on Sunday through Thursday night at 7.38. You can join us any of those nights and, and routinely and habitually show up to practice out this discipline of prayer. But maybe that time doesn't work for you. Well, it, it doesn't matter. It, the time doesn't matter. Figure out what the time is for you. And that's the great thing about these Facebook videos because you can go back and watch them at any time. You can watch every video from last week today. So whatever the time is for you, matter of fact, I've left a space in your bulletin this morning for you to schedule a time with God. Pick a time and pick a place. Where's it going to be? When's it going to be? Now, those are blank because you fill it in. Whatever is convenient for your schedule, but schedule a time with God. Don't miss out on it. And if after a couple days you realize, you know what, this place is not working out. It's a little too close to the TV or a little too close to the refrigerator. You know, maybe I need to go somewhere else. That's fine. It, it doesn't have to be a certain place. It doesn't even have to be a certain time. Just set up a time to live out your relationship with God in prayer. Now, there's one last thing that we need to learn about prayer before we can rightly begin to practice the discipline of prayer. It's something that Jesus even begins to hint at with his disciples when he was teaching them to pray. Luke 11, in verse 9, he says this, Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks, find. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit or good gifts to those who ask him? It's here that Jesus begins to reveal the basis of our prayer. In this text, God is called our Father and because of this reality and his nature as father, he provides for the needs of his children. And that's the role of every earthly father, that they would provide for their children. And Jesus' disciples understood this fact. But here's the reality. Some earthly fathers don't provide. 
But even the best earthly fathers, the ones that are always there, that always show up and provide every need, the problem is there are no comparison to our Father who is in heaven because we're evil. We're sin-ridden and guilty, vile. And yet, even though that's true, God still gives us good gifts. He still calls us his children, and we can call him Father. But Paul tells us in Galatians, there's actually only one way for God to be your father, and it's through adoption. You and I, because of our sin, are considered slaves and in bondage. And then Paul says this, Galatians chapter 4, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, don't be misunderstood by the use of the word underage or children. By this, it just means naive or, or foolish. And this is true of, every li- every, of our lives before Christ, and it's the truth of anyone who's still outside of Christ. They're in prison, prison to sin and to guilt, addiction, chained to lies and anger. Most importantly, they are guilty of the full judgment and penalty due to them because of their sin and eternal death. Paul goes on, though. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God had designed and planned for it. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, fully God, fully man, tempted and tried in every way in which we are and yet found guiltless. God sent forth Jesus to redeem or to buy back at a set price to redeem us who is in bondage so that, I want you to catch this, we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because of the cross, we move from slaves to sons and daughters. And with it comes all the glories of adoption, a change in our status, a change of our inheritance, a change in our name and in our direction. And then Paul ends this whole thing saying this, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, the most intimate form of father, Abba, father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, this is what I want you to catch here at the end. Because of Christ's blood, because of his work on the cross, our sins can be forgiven when we accept that free offer of salvation. And this is why, even though Jesus calls us evil, we can also be called children of God and count on him to provide us with every good need, everything that we need. See, the death of Jesus is the foundation for all the promises of God and every answer to prayer that we ever get. That's why we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, everything depends on him. Even our prayers depend on him. And so our prayers should always be in Jesus' name. We are relying on him. We are trusting in him. And because of him, we're able to approach the God of all creation with confidence And call him Abba and Father. It's a kind of confidence that whatever we bring before him will be heard. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you hear our prayers. And that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, 
at just the right time. And that he was tempted and tried in every way in which we are and yet found innocent, sinless. And that when he went to the cross, he paid the full penalty and wrath owed to all creation. And gave us a right standing with you. And that we can be adopted into your family. And we can call you Father. God, help us to be like never before, devoted to prayer. Help us to deepen our relationship with you by speaking to you on a daily basis. Help us to have a habit and a routine of communicating with you. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray. Amen.